From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letton. James White was working as a maintenance man in Minneapolis in 2005 when his boss told him to toss out some junk left behind in a vacant office. He wanted me to clean it out because one of the lawyers was leaving. He started hurling boxes from the lawyer's old office into a dumpster. Then something at the bottom of the dumpster caught his eye. A big box of CDs. I said, well, what are some tapes about? What are some CDs about? So I got in the dumps and got the CDs out, you know, and looked at them. Didn't know by, I didn't know no names at the time, you know. But the CDs were marked with something that James did recognize. Because I seen Hennepin County on there, Hennepin County on there on one of the CDs. And I said, these must be jail tapes or something. Jail tapes are the recordings of every phone call an inmate makes while in custody, often while awaiting trial. Prosecutors are interested in these conversations because sometimes they contain evidence like people confessing to a crime or pressuring people on the outside to hide evidence. The calls can also be things that point to innocence. Got curious, you know, what what people be saying on the phone. So I took them home. James knew something about how the criminal justice system worked for young black men. In 1989, he pled guilty to something he says he didn't do in order to avoid a much longer sentence. James and his wife started listening to the jail tapes, trying to piece together the story. Was he with you? Hell no, Skits wasn't even there. Skits was the street name of a black teenager named Mayan Burrell. He wasn't? Hell no. So why are they saying Skits did it? I don't know. The nigga that was getting busted said Skits did it. Nah, they, you, could go, you could go to court and testify for him. His mom just died. He had nothing to do with that. That's what I was trying to tell the motherfucker. They like, you lying. You just trying to help your friend. I'm like, mm, whatever, dude. Right away, some things sounded strange to James. And as he kept listening, a story unfolded. James and his wife learned all the characters. It centered on Mayan Burrell who was just 16 when he was arrested for a gang shooting in 2002. A stray bullet struck and killed an 11-year-old girl. From the jailhouse tapes James was listening to, Mayan's co-defendants were saying he wasn't there. Mayan was also saying he was innocent, and James believed him. I said, somebody else needs to do something about this little guy. This little guy ain't doing nothing. He's sitting in jail, ain't doing nothing. He didn't do nothing. But by that time, Mayan had been sentenced to life in prison. James called his pastor, looking for connections who could help. He got in touch with attorneys asking if they could take the case pro bono. He contacted the media. And I called the newspaper, the lady who was investigating it. She said, uh, well, they convicted him. Now ain't nothing we can do about it. You know, I said, but this, can you want to listen to these CDs I got? Ain't nothing we can, she said, well, nothing we can do about it. Fifteen years went by. James bought a suitcase for the tapes and lugged them each time he moved. I just kept them with me. I kept them tapes with me. I'm like, I moved several times, but everywhere I go, them tapes went with me. I said, one day, you know, and I told my wife, we always said, we ever get any money, we're going to try to get this brother out of jail, you know, because he shouldn't be there. James didn't know that someone else had taken an interest in Mayan's seemingly hopeless case, an investigative reporter for the Associated Press named Robin McDowell. Her name might sound familiar. Robin was a part of the AP team 
that broke the story of slavery in the seafood industry and won a Pulitzer Prize. After years of breaking stories like that in Asia, Robin moved back to the States and settled in Minnesota. But she wasn't expecting to find her next human rights investigation there. Robin's radio partner on the story, Sasha Aslanian of APM Reports, has more. When Robin got back from living overseas, she moved to a small town, not far from Minnesota's oldest prison. Prisons always really intrigued me and made me sad. People just drive by them on the highway, and it just it's just this place where people got put away, and you didn't really know what happened. Robin called Stillwater Prison and asked if she could volunteer there. The lady who answered the phone was pleased to get someone with Robin's experience. The prison had a newspaper. I was surprised there was a paper and excited by it. I mean, one of the things I've always liked doing is kind of mentoring journalists. And the fact that they had one at Stillwater and that it was the oldest prison paper in the country was really exciting to me. The prison mirror newsroom has three desks, a TV, stacks of newspapers, and a whiteboard. But they can't call sources outside the prison, and they don't have internet access. Robin's small staff of three turned over frequently, but they were always white guys in a prison where half the prisoners are black. Robin is white, too. One day, she got a new batch of reporters, three men who were black. And I'd hear, you know, things about the lack of evidence or things that the police tactics. And I was seeing a totally different side of the criminal justice system. And it's when I asked them at one point, you know, like, is there anyone in here that you guys think is innocent? And they all came up with the name Mayan Burrell. The name Mayan Burrell didn't mean anything to Robin. Remember, I'm new to Minnesota, so I didn't know anything about the case. They said he was a juvenile at the time, and that really interested me. Mayan was serving a life sentence for the murder of 11-year-old Taisha Edwards. Back in 2002, Taisha had been sitting at the dining room table at her home in Minneapolis with her little sister doing homework when a bullet pierced the wall and struck her in the heart. Authorities believe the stray bullet was intended for a rival gang member. There was immense pressure to solve the case. The hunt for an 11-year-old girl's killer continues tonight in Minneapolis. Police are taking their intense search to the streets. The search for her killer is tonight's top story. Within days, police had rounded up their suspects. 16-year-old Mayan Burrell and two men in their early 20s, Ike Tyson and Hans Williams. The top prosecutor in Minneapolis at the time was Hennepin County Attorney Amy Klobuchar. She would go on to win a U.S. Senate seat and run for president. Klobuchar announced first-degree murder charges. Burrell, Tyson, and Williams are believed to be gang members. Last Friday, they drove by a person that they thought was a member of a rival gang just north of Taisha Edwards' home. They went and got a gun and came back. Tyson and Burrell jumped out of the car and ran between the houses through the yards in the neighborhoods, and then Burrell began firing his gun at the intended target. Ike and Hans pleaded guilty. Ike got 45 years, and Hans, who drove the getaway car, got 30. Mayan said he was innocent and went to trial. He was convicted. When Robin started looking into his case, he was serving a life sentence. 
There are about 10,000 people serving life sentences in the United States for crimes committed when they were juveniles. That's according to the Sentencing Project, a group that works to end mass incarceration. Most of these juvenile lifers were locked up between 1993 and 2003, the heyday of the tough-on-crime period when Mayan was arrested. Half of them are Black. Robin's son is Black. He was 16, the same age Mayan was when he was arrested. Robin hung Mayan's photo on their fridge at home. She drew a map of the crime scene on her bedroom wall. So initially, when I sat down to look at the court documents, I started to wonder myself, you know, is, is he innocent? Because basically what you're getting there is the police narrative and the prosecutors and whatever witnesses they have pulled up to kind of strengthen their case. So when you just look at the documents initially, it's very confusing. And, you know, even I started to feel like, is this a case that is really worth pursuing? He looks guilty. Police first heard Mayan's name in connection with the shooting from a jail inmate. The man saw the story about Taisha's killing on the TV news that night and was hoping to trade some intel to help his own case. He'd worked with police before. From that point on, documents show police cementing their narrative around Mayan as the gunman. Robin read through the police report and watched the interrogation videos in the evidence box to piece together how they built their case. No gun, no DNA, no fingerprints linked Mayan to Taisha's shooting. All police had to go on was what people had told them. Police tried to flesh out the tip from the original jailhouse informant. They picked up a guy named Harold from Mayan's neighborhood. Here's the lead homicide detective, Richard Zimmerman, offering Harold cash for any information he might have, even if it was just things he'd heard on the street. But hearsay is still worth something to me. You know what I mean? Because hearsay, you know how sometimes if you work back hearsay, you know, and I work it around, I get hearsay here, I get hearsay here. Sometimes it's like a, like a jigsaw puzzle. This was three days after the shooting. So if I can get some names of the people that did this to this little girl, it's worth some major dollars to me, and nobody ever knows. Zimmerman offers $500 um, per name. Harold's response is hard to hear, but he says he doesn't know anything. And then he gives a handful of names anyway. He gets paid for one of them, Mayans. That same day, police picked up the guy who was the intended target of the bullet that killed Taisha. His name was Timmy Oliver. He was 17. Police questioned Timmy for eight hours. There's no recording of that. But after midnight, Timmy signed a statement saying the shooter was Mayan Burrell. With their eyewitness statement secured, police went looking for Mayan. When Mayan was picked up for his interrogation, he initially did not seem to understand exactly why he was there or what was going on. He thought they were there to ask about a friend who had a warrant and ran away. Mayan's three-hour interrogation was videotaped. You can see him. He's five foot three. He's a high school junior. He's wearing baggy pants, a red sweatshirt, and matching baseball cap. Mayan had had scrapes with the law, a small drug bust, and a curfew violation, but nothing like this. By this point in his life, he's the father of a one-year-old son. But when he's left alone in the room, he looks like a kid who doesn't quite understand the gravity of his situation. He spins around in his chair. At one point, he does some push-ups. When police ask him where he was the day of the shooting, he first says, the Mall of America. But that wasn't true. 
The detective tells him the other guys they've talked to say he did it. You want to tell us your side of... I didn't know anything about what happened to that little girl or anything. Okay, so you want to talk to us and tell us about that. I don't, I don't know anything about that, but I don't know what I would... And as soon as he started realizing that they actually were interested in him and suspected him of something... He started asking for his mother. Me being a, a juvenile interrogation, don't I get a, um, can I call my mother? Because well, the thing is, supposed to be going yeah, have, you ever been, have you ever been arrested in Minnesota before? Or hauled in, in, Minnesota? in most states, including Minnesota, it's legal for police to question a child without notifying the parent. He asked for her in total 13 times. It wasn't until after he asked for her the third time that they read his Miranda rights and then he continued to ask and ask and ask and they kept saying, you know, like, it'll be, you know, like, you'll get to talk to her, you know, just wait, we just want to talk to you first. When in fact, she was in one of the rooms right next door asking to see her son. That's also on tape. Am I able to see my son yet? Uh, It'll be a little bit, yeah. They were telling her the same thing, just wait, just wait, just wait. Then they told Marquita Burrell, her son was a suspect in a murder investigation. We believe your son shot at some opposing gang member, and the bullet went through and struck a 12-year-old girl and killed her. And I, I wouldn't say that unless we believed it. Let me ask you this, but you said there were other people. There. Yes. So, and they were probably also shooting too. Uh, no. no. Nobody else but you? One shooter? Yeah. And at that point, they had no evidence, and you're convincing a mother that your son has killed a little girl. The video shows Mayan's mother sobbing as she makes phone calls on a borrowed cell phone to tell family members the devastating news. Detectives go back and forth between mother and son, and they use an interrogation technique aimed at breaking down suspects. They try to make Mayan think his mother has turned on him, and it shakes him. I talked to your mom in depth about it. And you know what your mom told me? What she tell you? She told me you're capable of doing that. Hold on. You're capable of doing what? You're capable of shooting a gun at a gang member because who? Hold on. Are you serious? My mom said that? Yeah, that's a lie. That's not truthful. That's that's not truthful because I don't even, my mom knows that I, I, I don't even, I don't even believe in that. It's legal for police to lie during an interrogation. But Mayan's lie about being at the Mall of America would cost him. Prosecutors would use it as evidence of guilt. Mayan was certified as an adult and placed in solitary confinement. A month later, his mother was killed in a car accident, driving home from visiting him in jail. When his trial came the next year, he was convicted. Mayan challenged his conviction. The Minnesota Supreme Court overturned it. The court said the fact that he'd asked for his mother 13 times indicated he didn't understand his Miranda rights, and he was granted a new trial. But five years after his first trial, he was convicted again. By the time Robin started looking into his case, he was nearly out of legal options. Really, to get him back in court, you needed to find new evidence that would prove he was innocent. And that, after 18 years seemed impossible. (laughs) Robin was skeptical she'd find it. She wasn't sure if she could sell her editors on the story, but the guys at the prison newspaper had gotten her interested in why there were such radically different takes on Mayan's innocence or guilt. Mayan learned from the prison rumor mill that a reporter was potentially interested in his case. 
His family ran a free Mayan Burrell website and Facebook page, but they weren't getting much traction. They asked Robin if she would meet with them. They had gone through numerous lawyers by this point. They were pretty desperate, I would say, um, and were just really excited that somebody was going to look at their case. And so I went over there, and, you know, my aunt's dad was there, and his brother was there, and his stepmom was there, and his sister was there, and everyone talking a little bit about it. And, and my aunt's dad and his brother had both spent time in jail themselves for, for crimes that they said they committed. And they're like, we did it. You know, like, we went to jail and we did it. But Mayan wasn't there. And everyone in the neighborhood knows it. Mayan's wife, Lucretia Luckett, was a childhood friend who'd married him when he was in prison. She knew every detail of his case. This is Lucretia speaking at a community meeting. Everybody on the street knew he was innocent. But how do you stand up against the Minneapolis Police Department? It's hard to hear, but she's saying, how do you stand up against the Minneapolis Police Department? Lucretia thought her husband had been railroaded. When Robin talked with her, Lucretia knocked down all the evidence against him. Every time she'd be like, well, that person's lying. That person must have been given something. You know, and if you're hearing that again and again and again, it's kind of like, oh, my God, how many people are lying here? Like, this can't be. And by the end, that's what I was saying. <laughs> and it's, you start feeling like you're kind of in this conspiracy thing, but then then people are admitting they're lying or they got a crazy deal or they were pressured or threatened. When we come back, Robin digs into what investigators left out when they built their murder case against 16-year-old Mayan Burrell, including the man who says he was the real trigger man. I would rather him get out than still be locked up for something that I did. At which point did you admit to being the actual shooter? I told them that I was shooting from the beginning. You're listening to Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. Mayan Burrell had been locked up for half his life when an investigative reporter started looking into his case in 2018. He was in his early 30s, serving a life sentence. Rob McDowell had started investigating the case because she wanted to do a story about the impact that the Get Tough on Crime era had on teenagers. But the more she looked, the more she came to doubt the evidence against Mayan. Sasha Aslanian of APM Reports continues our story. In 2019, Robin requested interviews with the Minneapolis police to talk about their investigation into Mayan's case. She especially had questions about that video in the evidence box showing they'd offered money for hearsay. They stonewalled her. So she went door knocking. Hi. 
right. Trying to reach Lieutenant Zimmerman. That looks like you. What's that? Um, you're Lieutenant Zimmerman? Yes. Hi, my name's Robin McDowell. I'm a reporter with Associated Press. I've been trying... The lead homicide detective refused oh, no, to talk no. with her. I, I have no comment. Do you know what, I'm, you. what I'm here to talk about? Excuse me, Mr. Zimmerman, I'd like to show you a video. Can I show you a video? Robin set out to find people who were there or heard something or knew something. It was slow work. A lot of the key people were dead. Other people were in prison. And it was just like, God, how am I going to find these people using their nicknames on Facebook, not using their real names, you know? That's all right. I'm looking for Damien Lee. Does he still live here? Davey? Damien? Oh. Damien, no, he doesn't live here. Oh, do you know where he lives now? Does he live up on Bryant, maybe? One thing that became evident to Robin is police hadn't put much energy into collecting evidence that would support Mayan's side of the story. On the interrogation tape, he'd told them where to look. You don't know until you listen to the whole tape and get near the end that he says, I was at Cup Foods. Get the tape. Police records indicate the convenience store surveillance footage was reviewed, but never collected and entered as evidence. Mayan also named two alibi witnesses who he said were with him at the store. As Mayan's starting to get more and more frustrated and realize, you know, like, wait a minute, they don't believe me. They are, you know, they're coming down on me hard that they should just talk to his friends. I was there with Tasha or talk to Dino. And they basically are like, who's that? Are they going to say that you were together? And he's like, yeah, go talk to them. But neither of them was ever approached by police. It took a while, but Robin found both of them. Latasha Evans recalled standing outside Cup Foods with Mayan that afternoon. I don't know what we was talking about, but we was definitely just out there hanging. And, um... I think I was smoking. I, um, next thing you know, we heard gunshots a few minutes later, um, a lot of police and stuff. So after we hear all that, we just left. That's my exact words I said to him. I said, make sure you take your ass home. I said, go home, bro, go home. So you do not, I do not want to see you get blamed for this. That's my exact words. And I can't, I can't believe I just said that and he got blamed for it. The other friend, Dino, whose real name is Danelle Jones, told Robin he went to Cup Foods with Mayan that afternoon. When Dino contacted Mayan's attorney, he never got back to him. That's the attorney whose tapes were in the dumpster. He was later suspended for neglecting client matters. The case against Mayan hinged on the eyewitness testimony of Timmy Oliver, the 17-year-old who was the intended target of the bullet that killed Taisha. Timmy told the police Mayan was the shooter. Timmy was killed the next year in another gunfight, so it's impossible to confirm his story. But a friend of Timmy's, who was at the scene that day, says Timmy told him a different story immediately after the gun was fired. That friend's name is Antoine Williams, and Antoine said Timmy told him he couldn't see the shooter. When I ran outside and I asked him, like, where, where the shots come from, who shot, he said he, could, he didn't know, he couldn't tell, he just was shooting fast, he... He really couldn't tell where it was coming from or who, who was shooting. Antoine told that story to a private investigator hired by Mayan's family in 2010. Antoine told the investigator Timmy had been pressured by police. Basically, he used the word, they tricked me, you know, 
police just kept throwing pictures in front of him and, you know, he thought he was in trouble because he was the intended target. You know? He was afraid of the cops for himself. Yeah, that's and what it is. You're saying he's just trying to cooperate to get the heat off, the pressure off of himself. Pretty much. Pretty much? Yes. Timmy wasn't alive to testify in Mayan's second trial, so prosecutors had to change tactics. They basically shored up the case by combing the prisons and looking for jailhouse informants. They found seven of them. I was told that that is an extraordinarily high number, that often the prosecutors will rely on one jailhouse informant, sometimes two, but seven, seven, that kind of raises red flags. They don't have anything else in their bag of tricks, basically. Jailhouse informants are motivated. They can shave years off their own sentences. Some deals are hard to resist. We interviewed one of the informants, who's back in prison again. The police approached me when I was in federal holding. And they asked me, did I want to do something to get some time back? Terry Arrington was 22 years old and locked up on drug and weapons charges. Suddenly, he had a way to get home much faster. He knew Mayan, but he says he didn't really know anything about the shooting. So investigators briefed him. They basically brought me through what to say. Hit on this, hit on this. So, hey, I had, I was still young and I had fresh kids out there I was trying to get home to. So I did what they asked. Terry had been facing more than 16 years of prison time. After he testified, that was cut to three. He says the decision to lie weighs on him. Most of the others also had time shaved off their sentences. According to one of Mayan's attorneys, another informant has also recanted. So has Ike Tyson, one of the three men originally arrested in Taisha's killing. Remember those phone calls from jail that were on the CDs James White found in the dumpster? I think it was last night. Popo came here like, yeah, we got skips. Ike Tyson was telling people that Mayan wasn't there. He called him skits. Oh, my goodness. Walking to me like, yeah, we got your little homie skip. Yeah. I'm like, dang, my little homie, you got me fucked up. Somebody. We interviewed Ike in prison, where he's serving a 45-year sentence for his role in Taisha's murder. Ike pleaded guilty, and in his plea deal, he said Mayan shot the gun. Ike says the prosecutor and detectives told him he'd never see the outside of prison unless he said it was Mayan. I would rather the truth just be out that this dude didn't do anything. He shouldn't be locked up. You still got the the person that really did it is me. I'm locked up. I'm sorry. Ike won't say who the third person actually was. But Hans Williams, the getaway driver, named someone when he was on the witness stand and even pointed out his picture. Police say they looked into it and ruled that suspect out. The case file indicates the recording of the interview with that suspect was permanently checked out in 2007 on behalf of the Hennepin County Attorney's Office. We were told they can't locate it. When Ike and Hans and Mayan were arrested in 2002, Minneapolis was just starting to recover from soaring homicide rates that had earned it the grim nickname Murderapolis. 
but guns and gang warfare continued to ravage poor neighborhoods. After Taisha's killing, her mother spoke at a vigil. Please. Yes. Please, let's stop the violence. No, no. Please. That was just senseless is what it is. It's just senseless. Now that we've got your attention, please, everybody, we need to pull together as a community and do something about this. Everybody's upset because the kid's gotten killed. Mel Reeves is an editor for the Minneapolis Spokesman Recorder, the oldest Black-owned newspaper in Minnesota. He says the crackdown that swept up Mayan is a well-worn story of pinning blame, not finding justice. You know, every time a child gets shot, you know, everybody's up in arms and the conservative people in our community is like, oh, look how terrible our community is. We're killing kids. And, and so politicians' ears perk up. You know, Amy Klobuchar's in the world see an opportunity and they take it. You know, we're going to be tough on crime. And you got to remember people in our community want folks to be tough on crime because crime happens in our community, right? Mel says the black community is over-policed and mistrust runs deep. You know, most black people are intelligent enough to know that the system doesn't work for us. We just hope for the best. One of the dividing lines in how people view Mayan's case is over a detail early on. When police first questioned Mayan, he lied about where he was. Police, prosecutors, even his own white defense attorneys were suspicious. If you're innocent, why lie? In Mayan's community, the question was different. Why trust police? When we interviewed Mayan in Stillwater Prison, he told us when he learned that lesson. He was 12. A neighbor attacked his older sister with a switchblade and cut her hand. Mayan's mom called police. When the squad rolled up to their apartment, Mayan was out front on his bike. Police told him to freeze and put his hands in the air. Mayan was confused and didn't comply. One of the cops grabbed me off my bike and dragged me down the stairs, dragged me through the front of my yard and put me on, it was like a fence in the front. So my mom's sitting there and she's crying and she's like, that's my baby. Like she, you know, he didn't do anything. So they like put their guns on them and like, shut up, you know, uh, like whatever, let us handle this. And um, everybody came out, it's a whole bunch of people out there and they like, you know, that's a little kid, like, you know, get your hands off him. And he's like, I remember to this day, like they're just digging, it's a fence and it got like uh, points at the top of the fence and he's just you know, grinding my, my, my chest into the into the fence. And, you know, I'm probably, you know, um, saying slick stuff or, you know what I mean? I'm trying to, you know, I don't want to really break down in front of everybody, but I'm hurt. And I remember just being shook, like, these are the police. Police took Mayan downtown, and his mom had to go get him out. Mayan's older sister confirmed his account of the incident. The encounter with police seared two things into Mayan's memory. The police weren't on his side. And he remembered his mom's look of helplessness as she watched them take him away. When Mayan was arrested in the early 2000s, both Democrats and Republicans were embracing a tough-on-crime message to get elected. Amy Klobuchar ran for the U.S. Senate in 2006, and this was a radio ad her opponent, Republican Mark Kennedy, ran against her. If you're calling from one of the neighborhoods where violent crimes increased 35% in the last three years while Amy Klobuchar was prosecutor, we probably won't be going door-to-door in your neighborhood. Klobuchar's ad featured Taisha's mother. When our little girl, Taisha, was murdered, Amy saw to it that those gang members were put away. Mark Kennedy, you should be ashamed. Years later, 
in 2019, when Amy Klobuchar was running for president, she brought up Taisha's case on the debate stage in Houston. I am proud of the work our staff did, 400 people in our office. The cases that came to us, the African-American community that came to us, they said there was no justice for their little kids. There was a kid named Byron Phillips that was shot on his front porch. No one had bothered to figure out who did it. When I came into that office, we worked with the community groups, we put up billboards, we found the shooter, and we put him in jail. We did the same for the killer of a little girl named Taisha Edwards, who was doing her homework at her kitchen table and was shot through the window. I was like, wow, did she just go there? Because this really turned it into something that was a topical story. So I jumped on a plane. Robin had been reporting Mayan's case for months. She flew to New York to persuade her editors it was a story worth publishing. She went to the AP office with tape of her interviews. Take a listen. And it, it did. I mean, uh, there were, like, mouths open. Like, what? Klobuchar's fresh reference to Mayan's case made it a bigger story. And it provoked people like Mel Reeves from the Spokesman Recorder. She forgot that she had a skeleton in her closet, a big old one named Mayan Burrell. And, you know, folks like me are good at, <laughs> are good at pointing those kind of things out. There were lots of people who hadn't forgotten. The free Mayan Burrell Facebook page live-streamed a rally in downtown Minneapolis calling for a new trial. For weeks, Robin had been trying to get Senator Klobuchar on the record to answer questions about her office's handling of Mayan's case. And I was making it clear, like, this is really explosive. You know, this is not going to be something you don't want to address. And certainly I would have thought they'd want to get in front of it. The campaign released a two-paragraph statement that Mayan Burrell had been tried and convicted twice. And the second trial occurred when Senator Klobuchar was no longer the prosecutor. It said, if there's new evidence in this case, it should be immediately reviewed by the court. In January of 2020, Robin's deep dive into Mayan's case ran on AP and Minnesota Public Radio. Their reporting raises questions about how police conducted their investigation and whether the teenager sentenced to life may have been wrongfully convicted. Reaction was swift. On Fox News Sunday, Chris Wallace grilled Klobuchar. Senator, you're not answering my question. Did you know about the fact that there was this questionable evidence that the police were coming up with? I didn't know about this new evidence. No, I didn't know about this new evidence until I saw this report. I, I, I couldn't have. I haven't been in the office for 12 years. Sonny Hostin went after her on The View. You're a U.S. So thank senator. You for bringing it well, up. you're a U.S. senator now. You're a powerful woman. What do you yes. intend to do to right this yes. wrong? Well, I've called for uh, the office and the courts to review the evidence. Uh, that is what we must do in the justice system. Klobuchar called on her successor, Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman, to review any new evidence in the case. Freeman had overseen Mayan's second trial in 2008, the one that relied on all the jailhouse informants. He released a video statement, standing by the verdict. Contrary to some reports, this was solid police investigation and prosecution. We believe the right man was convicted in this heinous crime. 
However, as we have said before, if new evidence is submitted to us, we will gladly review it. As allegations about Mayan's case swirled around Klobuchar, the candidate tried to redirect the criticism of the case to those who had the power to reopen it. She met with Mayan's family and supported an independent legal review. But some of Mayan's supporters demanded she drop out of the race. It was almost unbelievable to see how this night unfolded. Senator Klobuchar set to rally in her home state only to have a determined group of protesters change things. Now, the protesters marched into St. Louis Park High School about 30 minutes before the rally was supposed to Senator Klobuchar had already been polling in the single digits. The next day, she withdrew from the presidential race. Breaking right now, Senator Amy Klobuchar has announced that she is suspending her campaign. And I want to we get- are following breaking news at the moment. CBSN has learned Senator Amy Klobuchar is dropping out of the Democratic race for president and will endorse Joe Biden. Just a few months after Amy Klobuchar drops out of the presidential race, another major news event happens in Minneapolis. There's an awakening that's happening. People are starting to ask really important questions rather than just blindly trusting the criminal justice system to get it right. How the death of George Floyd puts renewed attention on Mayan Burrell's case. That's next on Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Robin McDowell's investigation brought national attention to Mayan Burrell's case when it first came out in January of last year. But Mayan was still locked up in prison, serving a life sentence for a murder he insisted he didn't commit. He asked to go before the pardons board, but the board hadn't commuted a sentence for a violent crime in decades. And then, four months after Robin's story was published. Call on two, Minneapolis, Cup Foods, 3759 Chicago Avenue, code two for a medical. That's the dispatcher's call from the day George Floyd died in Minneapolis. Former police officer Derek Chauvin is now on trial for Floyd's death. Floyd was outside of Cup Foods. That's the same convenience store where Mayan Burrell said he was on the afternoon of Taisha's shooting. With Floyd's death, long-simmering tensions between the Minneapolis police and communities of color exploded. Robin wondered how Mayan's case would be affected. I think what actually happened is that it put a new spotlight on Mayan's case and made it more believable to some people who may have been doubting that Minnesota actually got it wrong. Sasha Aslanian of APM Reports continues our story. 
After Robin's story on Mayan's case was released, Senator Amy Klobuchar called for an independent review. A panel of legal experts examined the case, and in December, came out with their findings. The 59-page report said the police appeared to have suffered from tunnel vision while investigating Mayan's case, and they ignored witnesses and evidence that might have helped clear him. The panel concluded no purpose was served by Mayan's continued incarceration. They wrote, Two things have changed dramatically since Taisha Edwards' killing in 2002. One is Mayan Burrell. The other is the way our nation looks at the sentencing of juvenile offenders, such as the 16-year-old at issue in this case. The chair of that panel was Mark Osler, a former assistant U.S. attorney and law professor. He said the idea that young people who commit crimes are so-called super predators has been widely discredited. Brain science advanced from that point. And one thing that we've seen is a line of Supreme Court cases that has embraced the idea that juveniles need to be sentenced differently than adults are because they're at a different stage in life and they're more capable of change. The harsh sentences that led to mass incarceration may be falling out of favor, but there are still thousands of people locked up for life for crimes they committed as juveniles. Laura Nyrider, co-director of the Center on Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University, sees an increasing interest in revisiting those cases. Over and over and over again, these stories are being told uh, and capturing the public's attention in a way that hasn't happened before. There's an awakening that's happening. People are starting to ask really important questions rather than just blindly trusting the criminal justice system to get it right. A week after the legal panel gave its assessment, Mayan got his chance to appear before the Minnesota Board of Pardons. It's a three-member panel made up of the governor, the attorney general, and the Supreme Court chief justice. They have to be unanimous. The board hadn't commuted a sentence for a violent crime in almost 30 years. The chief justice recused herself, so it was down to two. Mayan sat in a conference room at Stillwater Prison, dressed in a white Muslim prayer cap. He'd been elected imam by his fellow inmates. He prepared to address the governor and attorney general over Zoom. He would have just under 12 minutes to describe the man he had become in 18 years behind bars. Please proceed, Mr. Burrell. Mayan began by talking about Taisha. This is not uh, any, in any way, shape, or form me trying to minimize the tragedy of the loss of uh, 11-year-old Taisha Edwards. My heart goes out to her family as well as everybody else that was affected by her murder back in 2002. But Mayan said he didn't do it. I come before you, a 34-year-old man, who spent more than half of his life incarcerated for a crime I didn't commit. The board wouldn't determine his guilt or innocence. It would focus on his character and if he should remain behind bars. Mayan described all the programs he'd completed in the hopes that one day he might get to go home and live life as a productive member of society. You know, despite me being incarcerated for a crime I didn't commit, I try to make the best of my situation. I try to go in there and extract some medicine up out of the poison, you know, the trials and tribulations I was going to, I try to get something out of it. Mayan's attorney and a few others spoke on his behalf. Then the board announced its decision. I, Governor Walls, vote in favor of granting this request. Mr. Burrell, you've been granted a commutation to your sentence of 20 years. The Commissioner of Corrections will work with you and your family immediately. I wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it.
Mayan would be released after 18 years with the final two years of his 20-year sentence on supervised release. Senator Klobuchar issued a statement calling it the right decision. He hadn't been pardoned. He was still a felon, and he would wear an ankle bracelet. But Mayan walked free from prison that night. Oh, that was really surreal. I looked up and I seen all these people out in the lobby, and it's like, whoa. And then I heard them chanting and screaming, and it's like, whoa. And it was so surreal. It's like coming from the darkness into the light. You know, it felt so good, and it just felt... uh, It felt like every step, every step that I took, it was just like bricks, just bricks and bricks and bricks just being removed from my shoulders. He was walking out those doors, you know, the same doors I'd been going in every week. And it was just really, it was really, uh, I can't even explain it. (laughs) It was one of the best feelings I've had. In 2002, Mayan Burrell came up against a system that couldn't hear his pleas of innocence. Police, prosecutors, even his own defense attorneys let him down. But it was painfully obvious to someone who had listened to the tapes. James White, the maintenance man who found the jail tapes in the dumpster, emailed the AP in December. He had something he wanted to give to Mayan. Five days after his release... Mayan came to his home. But uh, they're yours, brother. They're yours. They're yours. Man. Whoa. You had it for all these years, huh? Yeah, brother. Man. I mean, I'm sorry. No, I can't get nobody to do anything, but hopefully something can come out of this, you know, because you didn't deserve nothing to happen to you. You didn't deserve nothing. You shouldn't have never been charged. Mayan is still fighting for full exoneration. The tapes could help him prove his innocence so he won't be a felon anymore. The men shook hands and embraced. And then they reminisced about men they knew from prison. Hey, is 5'5 five five still in there? The old man 5'5? Five five. No, but I was in there 30 years, 20 years ago. He passed away, I think. Yeah. Dog bone's in there? Dog bone, huh? Oh, yeah? Yeah, he just went home like uh, two years ago. For real? Three years ago, yeah. He was in there a long time. While Mayan fights to be exonerated, Robin McDowell keeps getting calls. Rush City Correctional Facility. This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring... An inmate at the Minnesota Department of Corrections, Lionel Lakes Correctional Facility. To accept this free call, press... I hear, like, almost every day from somebody. I wasn't involved in the murder, so, like, you're barking up the wrong tree. Like, I keep telling you, I don't know anything. The scary shit that was going on, and I didn't know what to do. If I hadn't done my own story and I was getting these same calls and looking at their cases, I'd be like, yeah, he looks guilty. And now when I get the calls and I look up the cases and I start seeing the same patterns that I saw with my I just have another weight on my shoulders of this guy could be innocent or at the very least serving a sentence that's way too long. And I, I'll probably never get to the case. That was Associated Press reporter Rob McDowell, along with APM Reports' Sasha Aslanian.
Most people serving life sentences don't have an investigative reporter show up to volunteer at their prison and spend a year reinvestigating their case. Most don't have ties to a presidential candidate to make their story more appealing to news editors. And George Floyd's killing probably also played a role. Floyd's death gripped Minnesota and put a spotlight on systemic racism before the eyes of the world. There are efforts around the country to review old cases like Mayans. About a dozen states have set up sentencing review units or conviction review units. Minnesota is establishing one, but it's unlikely all the Mayans out there will get anyone to give their old cases a second look. Our story was produced by Robin McDowell of the AP and Sasha Aslanian of APM Reports. It was edited by Catherine Winter of APM Reports. Margie Mason co-wrote the AP series and assisted with reporting. Thanks to NPR News and CARE 11 for archival footage. Thanks also to Reveal's Catherine Miskowski. Victoria Baronetsky is our general counsel. Our production manager is Amy Mustafa. Original score and sound design by the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. That helped this week from Brett Simpson. Our digital producer is Sarah Merck. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Sumi Agarwal is our interim editor-in-chief. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Democracy Fund, and the In As Much Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Ledson. And remember, there is always more to the story.